Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we joined the Doctor, Romana, Adric and K9 for their final e-space adventure in Warrior's Gate. As usual, we were discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E, T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. But first, as always, I shall do is a story recap. Do. Have fun. I'll do my best. <laughs> Part one. On board a starship, a group of fur-covered, lion-like humanoids sleep in a state of suspended animation. As they sleep, a voice counts down whilst the human crew of the ship attend their workstations. On the bridge of the ship, one of the humanoids is strapped to a chair in a trance-like state. The countdown reaches zero, but nothing happens, and the captain of the ship, Rorvik, angrily demands to know what went wrong. One of his crew, Packard, says the humanoid is not visualising their target, and Rorvik tells him to make a blind jump. Packard warns against jumping blind into timelines, but Rorvik ignores him and activates the jump, and the ship shudders as it blasts off. Rorvik then goes to the humanoid, whose name is Birok, and demands to know where the blind jump has taken them but Birok remains silent and motionless. Rorvik orders an energy cable to be routed through the chair Birok is in in order to force him to show their destination. The energy surge causes Birok great pain, and he shows them their location via a monitor above his head. An alarm packard says that they are heading into a time rift, and time slows down as various computer stations and consoles spark and explode all around the bridge. On the monitor above Birok, a faint image of the TARDIS appears. On the TARDIS, the Doctor and Romana try to navigate the TARDIS through the time rift, arguing back and forth over the right way to do it. Romana says the Doctor doesn't know what he is doing, but he replies that he is following his intuition. Romana says that that is no better than tossing a coin, which leads to a nerd debate over the usefulness of coin-based selection based on the ancient Chinese I Ching methodology. A curious Adric asks K9 what they are talking about, and the robot dog explains the concept to Adric, who then starts flipping a coin. Back on the starship... Rorvik blames Birok for the accident, but he is then called by, away by Packard to listen to a report from another crew member, Lane, who is examining the extent of the damage caused by the time rift. He says that one of the power lines was heavily damaged, and if they don't repair it, it sh- could mean that the warp drive will never work again. The communication breaks up, and Rorvik angrily blames the now unconscious Birok for their situation. Packard says that they need to heal Birok if they want to have any hope of getting moving again. Rorvik begrudgingly orders the two other crew members, Kilroy and Sagan, to take him and treat him. As they carry him to the sick bay, Birok suddenly wakes up and throws them both to the floor before staggering away. As he makes his way through the ship, he confronts Lane, who seems stunned to see him. Birok stares at him intently and then moves off. Lane takes out his communication device, but when he gets through to Rorvik, he struggles to say anything. Back on the TARDIS, the Doctor and Romana continue to bicker back and forth over how to get out of E-Space. Romana, who knows that returning to real space would mean having to go back to Gallifrey, asks if they have the right to take Adric with them, but the Doctor says that he will love it on Gallifrey. Suddenly, Adric gets up from beside K9, and after flipping a coin, presses a switch on the console, which seems to stop the turbulence of the time rift. The Doctor demands to know what he has done, and K9 says that he made a decision based on the coin flip, which the Doctor was earlier espousing. Suddenly they are all thrown to the floor by a sudden shake and they see the console spark as the TARDIS doors open. A white light fills the room which burns the Doctor's hand and fries K9's circuit when it hits them. 
Suddenly, Birok walks into the TARDIS, seemingly unaffected by the light, which the Doctor says are the winds of time. They watch as he approaches the console and notice that his body is out of phase as echoes of his form repeat his actions on the console. Roman is amazed as the process should have torn him apart. On the ship, the TARDIS is detected, and Rorvik says that they may have equipment that can help repair the damage caused by the time rift. He then says that they will need a new navigator, but Packard says that they don't have the proper equipment to wake any of the other humanoids up. Rorvik says that they can jury-rig something, and says that some may die, but they would have to deal with the loss of profit that it causes. Packard then orders two of the maintenance crew, Aldo and Royce, to bring up the equipment from the storage room so they can use it to access the TARDIS, and Rorvik says Lane will be leading the boarding party. Back on the TARDIS, Romana asks if Birok can see them, and the Doctor says that they will be appearing out of face to him as well. Birok tells him his name, and warns him of the approaching humans, and tells them to be careful. He then leaves, but before he goes into the white void, Romana asks what he is, and he says that he is a shadow of their future and of his own past. After he leaves, the Doctor tells the others to stay behind whilst he and K-9 follow after Birok. However, K-9 is too damaged to go, and so the Doctor goes by himself. As he leaves, Romana says that the coordinates on the console read as zero, and the Doctor tells her to think about what that could mean. Once she realises what it means, she explains to Adric that they are at the intersection of real space and e-space. They then start working on repairing K-9, and Adric expresses excitement at joining them in real space. Romana asks how he would feel if she and the Doctor went on different paths, and he asks why that would be. Instead of answering him, she goes back to repairing K-9, who tells him that he has detected three human lifeforms approaching the TARDIS. Adric turns on the external view screen and sees Lane, with a large piece of equipment strapped to his chest, approach the TARDIS followed by Rorvik and Packard. Romana says that she should get back to repairing K-9, who got stuck in a calculation loop which drained his power and destroyed his memory chips. Meanwhile, Birok makes his way through the void before arriving at a pair of wooden doors built into a stone archway. He pushes them open and makes his way inside, and a few moments later, the Doctor arrives and goes in after him, finding himself inside the main hall of a large castle. Birok goes to the dining room, which is covered in cobwebs with skeletons sitting at the table. He then sadly makes his way to a large mirror, which he then passes through, but the manacles he is wearing do not pass away with him. The Doctor arrives a few moments later and looks around and then spots the manacles. As he goes to investigate them, a suit of armour comes to life and approaches him with its axe raised above its head. Part 2 The Doctor dodges out of the way at the last second and hides amongst the other suits of armour in an attempt to evade his pursuer. However, his plan fails and the armour continues its pursuit of him. The Doctor tries to defend himself with weapons that are scattered around the hall, but the armour chops through them. Suddenly, a second suit of armour joins in on the attack. He manages to lure them closer to him, and when he exposes his neck for the killing blow, both suits of armour instead decapitate each other due to the close proximity. Back on the TARDIS, Romana and Adric observe Rorvik and the others. Romana says that, judging by the technology they are using, they may have compatible memory chips that she can use to repair K-9. Adric suggests asking them for help, but Romana reminds him of Birok's warning. When he asks why they should trust Birok, Romana reminds him that Birok was running from something. She tells Adric to wait inside while she goes outside to confront the others and tells him to stay put if she sees her raise her arms. Romana asks Lane where they are from and Rorvik responds that they are traitors before asking if she knows what a Tharal is. Romana describes Birok and they ask if she has seen him 
but she evades the question by saying this difficult to answer due to the time distortion. Rorvik asks her what she knows about time, and she replies that she travels in it, and surprises them further when she says that she doesn't need a tarot to do it. Rorvik stops her as she goes through the technical jargon of travelling in the TARDIS, and steers the conversation back to Berok, but she continues to ev- give evasive answers. She turns the topic of conversation to the damage done to their ship, and Lane explains what happened. She raises her arms above her head as if stretching, but is actually signaling to Adric to stay inside. She then asks to be led to their ship, and Rorvik agrees, confiding in Packard that they may be able to use her as a replacement for Birok. After they leave, Adric tells K9, who is now recharged but speaks incoherently, that Roman is in danger. K9 says that they must rescue her, and he assures Adric that he is operating perfectly as he goes out the door, tail first. However, they soon get lost, and K9 confirms that he is not as useful as he would like. On the ship, Rorvik gives Romana a tour of the bridge, but he suddenly orders her to be strapped into the navigation chair. Despite Packard's misgivings that the process could kill her, Romana survives the experience but isn't able to navigate the time streams as Orvik believed. He addresses the crew and says that they would have to wake up the other Tarons in an attempt to get out of the time rift. Before anyone can object, Sagan notices that an image is manifested on the screen above Romana's head, showing the stone archway. Rorvik gets him to log the coordinates and then orders an expedition crew to get ready. As they leave, Aldo and Royce show apprehension at going, so Rorvik tells them that to get one of the Tarns ready for the navigation chair when he returns. They go, they go inside to follow the orders and pick up one of the Tarns at random. They attempt to wake it back up, but they end up severely electrocuting it, causing it to scream in agony. Back in the void, K9 explains to Adric how he is able to navigate the void by a triangulation. This gives Adric an idea, and he tells K9 to stay put whilst he goes off in a different direction with one of his sensor ears. However, after he leaves, K9 announces that he's discovered Romana's trail again and heads off without informing Adric. Meanwhile, in the castle, the Doctor is examining the suits of armour and sees that they are robots. He begins stripping them for parts so that he can repair K9. As he does this, he activates one of the robots' voice box and it says that no Tarl shall outlive the day of the feast. The Doctor tinkers with it some more, and it reveals that it and the other robots are called Gundans, killing machines designed to be resistant to the damaging effects of the time winds whilst hunting and killing the Tharls. It says that they could not follow the Tharls through the gateway, but when the Doctor presses for more information, it powers down. The Doctor wishes he had a power supply, and just then K9 rolls into the room backwards. He asks K9 to allow him to hook him up to the Gundan so that he can use his energy to get the answers he needs. K9 says his energy levels are critical, but the Doctor says it is important as it could lead them out of e-space, and the robot dog agrees. The Gundan reactivates and begins to recount how the Tarls once ruled an empire with slaves they took from human worlds. The Doctor asks about the gateway, and the Gundan says that there are three interlinked gateways and that the Tarls navigate through them. Suddenly, Rorvik and his men arrive and the Doctor tries to stop the Gundan from speaking, but Rorvik pulls a gun on him, forcing him to let the robot speak. The Gundan repeats that what it said earlier, but it just as it's about to reveal how to navigate the gateway, another Gundan activates and decapitates it. The Gundan then gets up and rushes through the mirror that Birok went through earlier, despite the Doctor and the others' attempts to stop it. Rorik and his men investigate the mirror, and the Doctor uses their distraction as an attempt to slip away with K9. Rorik notices this and tells his men to find the Doctor. They manage to corner him before he gets out and he retreats through the mirror. 
K9 tries to contact him for more instructions, but gets no response. Meanwhile, on the ship, the electrocuted Tarl gets up and staggers towards the bridge, where it finds Romana trying to get out of the navigator's chair. It reaches out for her, causing her to scream. Part 3 The Doctor finds himself on the other side of the mirror, gazing at the confused crew of the ship and K9. He then notices that Barok is beside him. Barok tells the Doctor that the damage to his hand from the time winds will soon heal. The Doctor asks if K9 will be able to get through the mirror, and Barok replies that he will when the time is right. The Doctor then watches as Rorvik and his men kick and shoot at the mirror in an attempt to find a way through. K9 gives a running commentary on their failed efforts, prompting Rorvik to kick him. K9 produces his nose blaster, scaring everyone back, but he immediately runs out of energy and powers down. Doctor says he needs to save him, but Barok warns him that, as K9 is made of non-organic matter, any repairs the Doctor makes on him on this side of the mirror will be undone if he goes back to the other side. Doctor asks where they are, and Barak gives a vague answer that they are in the same place as they left. Doctor realises that the mirror is one of the gateways between real space and e-space. When he goes to ask Barak more questions, he sees that he has disappeared again. Meanwhile, back on the ship, the Tarl tries to release Romana from the chair, but she tells him to hide when she hears voices approaching. A few moments later, Aldo and Royce come in, searching for the Tarl, but find no sign of it. Romantin demands to know what they are doing with the Tarls, but suddenly the alarm goes off. It is a call from Rorvik, who orders them to prepare a device called the MZ to be collected. Out in the void, Packard and Lane make their way back to the ship to collect the MZ, and they are followed by K9, who keeps requesting that they give him orders. He follows them inside the ship as Lane says that the journey from the castle seems shorter than the trip to it. K9 announces that the void is unbalanced and is shrinking, but Packard ignores him as he picks him up and throws him back outside. As he does this, Adric, who has been wandering the void, following decisions based on coin flips, sneaks inside the ship and hides when Packard comes back in and orders it to be sealed off. Packard gets a call from Rorvik asking about the status of the MZ, just as Lane arrives to say that Romana has gone missing. Packard tells Rorvik that they will return to the castle shortly, and then confronts Aldo and Royce, asking them what happened, but they say they have no idea. He angrily tells them to take the MZ outside, and then orders the ship to be searched for Romana. Unbeknownst to them, Adric and Romana have stowed away in the MZ, and once Aldo and Royce go back inside, they emerge from hiding. Romana says that she wants to get back inside so she can see what they are doing with the Tarrells. Adric asks where the Doctor is, and Romana says that she saw a vision of him in the navigation chair. They then hide again when they hear someone exit the ship. They see that it is Lane, and Romana says that they should follow after him. He leads them to the damaged section of the ship, and they overhear him say to Packard that the engines are intact enough to perform a backblast, which Rorvik has suggested they use if the MZ doesn't work. He says that he needs to do some further checks on the electrics, but all he gets is static on his communicator. After he leaves, Romana comments that the warp drive seems too big for the size of the ship, and she takes a closer look at the hull. She discovers that it is constructed of dwarf star alloy, and Adrix says that the density of the alloy is why they have larger warp drives. Suddenly K9 appears and again announces that the void is contracting. He continues to ask for orders, and Romana begs him to be quiet, but, but he moves off again, and she tells Adric to go after him. Lane and Packard appear, having been drawn to the commotion, and they capture Romana, who shouts for Adric to take K9 back to the castle so they can find the doctor. Back on the other side of the mirror, the Doctor follows Birok as he leads him through the grounds of a lush country estate. He arrives at a mansion and he hears music from inside it. 
He rubs away the dirt from one of the windows to take a look inside, but he can't see anything. Suddenly, a female Tarl appears and offers him her hand. He takes it and she leads him inside the mansion. Romana is being taken towards the brig, but they encountered the wounded Tarl that freed her. He knocks out the guard escorting her and then signals for Romana to follow him. They touch hands and they fade from sight, re-emerging in the void. They make their way to the castle where they arrive just as Packard's men and the MZ do. Rorik starts to give out orders and is amazed to see Romana and the Tarl rush past and into the mirror. He goes back to telling the crew the precarious situation that they are in, but they pay no attention to him as they go about setting up the MZ. Frustrated, he draws his blaster and aims it at them, which ensures their attention as he again talks about their situation. Meanwhile, in the mansion, the doctor is led to a large dining room where several tarles are feasting, being served by a human female. The doctor is brought to the table where he meets Birok, who tells him that they are now back in the time that was at the height of the Tarl Empire. The doctor asks how they have human servants, and Birok says that nothing is an obstacle for them due to their ability to navigate the time winds. Suddenly, one of the other Tarls strikes the servant, and the doctor goes to her aid. The doctor realises why the Gundans were created to hunt the Tarls. He returns to the table and knocks over his drinking goblet in disdain at the Tarls' actions, but Beric says that the weak enslaved themselves. The doctor further berates the cruelty of this, which causes the Tarl to pull a knife on him. Suddenly, a group of Gundans storm into the dining room and attack the Tarls, who flee. Romana suddenly appears beside the doctor and says they need to get away. Suddenly, they find themselves back in the dining room on the other side of the mirror, surrounded by Rorvik and his men. Part 4 Rorvik demands to know how the Doctor is able to jump back and forth between the two realms, but Romana says that he won't get any answers if he continues to aim his gun on them. Romana then mockingly asks if they have managed to fix their ship, but the Doctor tells her that they are all in the same situation. Rorvik again demands to know how to use the mirror to escape, but the Doctor says that only the Tharals can use it. He instead says that they should work together to try and find a way out, but when he sees that Rorvik has no interest, he instead asks for some food for himself and Romana. Rorvik allows them to eat, saying it is the last meal for them, but just then K9 rushes in, continuing to ask for orders. The doctor goes to him and listens as K9 says that the void is in imminent danger of collapse. Romana says that his processing power might be affected due to the damaged memory chips, but the doctor says he believes him and he relays the danger to Rorvik and his men. Rorvik says that it is a lie, but Packard says that they should hear him out. The doctor says that the rate of collapse seems to be disproportionate to the area of the void, but Romana informs him of the Dwarf Star alloy of the ship. The doctor then realises what Rorvik and his crew actually do, and he tells Romana that they are slavers who trade in time-sensitive beings like the Tharls. He says that the alloy is the only thing that can hold a time-sensitive being, and he demands to know how many Tharls are on board the ship. Rorvik again says that it's all a bluff on the Doctor's part, but both Packard and Lane mention the fact that the trips between the castle and the ship have been getting shorter each time. Rorvik refuses to listen and aims his gun at the Doctor as he demands that he lead them through the mirror. The Doctor faces the mirror and addresses Berak, who is on the other side, but no one else can see him. Berak acknowledges the abuse that the Tarals are guilty of during their time in power, but asks the Doctor whether or not his people have suffered enough for their crimes. Doctor echoes Beric's earlier comment about the weak enslaving themselves, leading Beric to say that the time of enslavement is over. Doctor asks how he and the others can escape, and Beric tells them to do nothing and leaves. Doctor begs him for more information, but Rorvik says that his time is up. 
Suddenly, Adric appears and aims the MZ at the slavers, saying that he will use it on them unless they let the Doctor go free. The Doctor thanks Adric and tells him and Romana to take K9 outside, whilst he holds Rorvik and the others at bay with the MZ. The Doctor tells him to stay back as he has set the machine to automatic, and he rushes outside to join the others, telling them that they need to get back to the TARDIS. Lane points out that the MZ doesn't have an automatic function, and Rorvik orders his men to give chase. When they go outside, Rorvik sees that the void is indeed shrinking, and he orders everyone back inside to use the MZ. However, Aldo and Royce say that the machine is dangerous and instead rush back to the ship. A few moments later, there is a large explosion, and Rorvik and the others emerge from the castle covered in dust and debris. Undeterred, Rorvik orders everyone back to the ship so they can try the black glass maneuver. In the TARDIS, Adric suggests that they should just dematerialize, but the two Time Lords say no with Romana pointing out that there are still slaves on the other ship. Suddenly the TARDIS shakes, throwing them all to the ground. They get up and they look at the external view screen, and they see the ship turning to prepare the backblast manoeuvre. Romana says that it won't work, as the blast will simply bounce back from the mirror and destroy the ship and everything around it, thereby speeding up the shrinking of the void. Adric says that the destruction of the void could send them back into real space, but Romana again mentions the slaves. Adric reminds her of the exposed section of the hull, and Romana tells the Doctor that they could short out the engines and stop the backblast. The Doctor tells them both to stay behind and leave if he is not back in 13 and a half minutes. Romana refuses to obey him and says that he will need her in order to guide him to the right spot on the ship. Adric attempts to follow, but uses the Doctor's rhetoric to order him to stay behind. They leave, with the Doctor reminding Adric of the 13 and a half time minute limit. On the ship, Packard initiates the backblast manoeuvre, but says that it will need about 10 minutes to build up. Rorvik then orders him to start reviving the Tarles. Packard says that 10 minutes isn't enough time to revive them properly, but Rorvik says to wake them all up, as one of them may survive the process. Aldo and Royce begin hooking up the Tarles to the reviving machines, but neither of them have the stomach to carry out the task, and they gratefully leave when Sagan comes to assist them. A short while later, Rorvik and Lane arrive in the reviving chamber, but Sagan tells him that none of the Tarles have survived so far. Lane says that there may be a power fluctuation caused by the exposed cables, but Rorvik says that he will go and check, and orders Lane back to the bridge before telling Sagan to keep going. After they leave, Tarek and the Tarl that rescued Romana make their way inside the ship. Outside, the Doctor enters the damaged section whilst Romana stays on guard. However, after he starts climbing up to the walkway above the engines, she also enters the ship and goes in a different direction. Doctor reaches up to the top of the ladder, but he is confronted by Rorvik. The Doctor tells him that the backblast won't work, but Rorvik ignores him and kicks him off the ladder onto the walkway below. He follows on after the Doctor and starts to strangle him before Romana appears and attempts to intervene. The Doctor tells her that there is no time, and he gives her a set of dwarf star alloy manacles to absorb the energy from the exposed cables. The plan works and the engines power down, and Rorvik flees the area. Beric suddenly reappears and reiterates his earlier statement to do nothing. The Doctor begins to get angry, but Romana comes back and says that he should think on Beric's words. The Doctor finally understands, and Beric transports them off the ship. Rorik watches them go as he removes the manacles from the cabling, and gloatingly calls after them that they are doomed. Meanwhile, the other Tarl arrives at the reviving room and kills Sagan with an electrical cable before waking the slave Tarls up. The Doctor and Romana get back to the TARDIS with Beric, and the Doctor says that they need to leave. However, Romana says that she is not coming with him, as she intends to stay behind and help Beric free the rest of the enslaved Thals spread throughout his space.
The doctor gives her canine, saying that he would be all right with her in the realm beyond the mirrors. He says that he will miss her and says that she was the noblest Romana he ever met. The TARDIS then dematerializes just as the backblast goes off, destroying the ship in the stone archway. Romana, Beric and K-9 watches the TARDIS goes, and Romana says that she will miss it. K-9, now fully repaired, says that he has the specifications on how to build a new TARDIS, and Romana says that they will need one to help in their mission. Meanwhile, Adric says the images on the external view screen have faded, and he asks if they are back in real space. The Doctor says he hopes so. Adric then asks if Romana will be alright, and the Doctor smiles sadly, saying that she will be superb. End of the story. So, thus ends the story summaries for the eSpace trilogy. Then we now go on to the final trivia spot for the eSpace trilogy. So, Trish, what do you got for us? Cool. So, the air date for Warriors Gate is the 3rd to the 24th of January 1981. The writer of the story is Steve Gallagher, who also used the pseudonym John Littaker. This is the first of two credits for Steve. We will see his work again in Terminus. The director of the story is Paul Joyce, and is the only Doctor Who directing credit for Paul. Joyce was briefly fired from his position after a dispute to do with production, uh, leaving the production assistant Graham Harper to oversee the latter half of filming the script. But then he was quickly rehired after the issues of production were worked out and also because no one could figure out how to do what it was he was trying to do. Hmm. I'll get more into that a little bit later on in the trivia, but to date he's the only director on Doctor Who to have been fired and rehired in the same story. Oh, wow. <laughs> As you said, this is the final story in the E-Space trilogy. Um, a couple of differences, though, from what was originally planned. So the script development of the serial went through through went through two distinct phases so initially the project was tackled by christopher priest in his version of the final chapter of the e-space trilogy the doctor and romana would have exited e-space via a sort of political thriller story involving gallifrey uh, the script was called serial orders and presumably would have dealt more directly with romana's failure to return to gallifrey following her temporary assignment to find the key to time hmm. that was sort of you know, all time was spent sort of massaging that treatment, trying to get it to work before it was ultimately abandoned to be replaced by Steve Gallagher's penned effort called the Dream Time, also just simply referred to as Dream Time. Though the basic elements of the story would remain in Warriors Gate, the final script was heavily rewritten by script editor Christopher Bidmead and by the director Paul Joyce. Joyce would later claim that in fact the scripts were so much a product of his effort that he in fact deserved the writing credit and not Steve. In addition to the difficulties surrounding the writing of the story, everything of this production was problematic. Tom was still off form because of his ongoing illness and was particularly tetchy. Um, also, this was Lala's last story and so he was also a bit odd over that. That you know, Lala, who at this point they'd gone back to being together and now she was leaving. Um, both he and Lala were deeply displeased with the characterizations in the initial script, which was one of the reasons why Paul Joyce had to be so heavily involved in the rewrite, because he couldn't get them to perform unless their script concerns were addressed directly. So, a lot of issues with the script. Mm. At the same time, Paul Joyce had little experience directing for television and had considerable disagreements with John Nathan Turner 
and the lighting director, John Dixon. Like I said, ultimately this led to Joyce being sacked. However, no one could understand his camera script. (laughs) And so he had to quickly be brought back. Also, the production was hit by a strike of BBC Carpenters, which further delayed matters. Uh, The privateer set was briefly condemned as unsafe by inspectors in the middle of the production block, which meant that they couldn't use it, or any use of it was limited um, to the number of people who could be up it at any one point in time. Okay. Also, part of that issue with um, Paul Joyce was that one of the things that he was trying to do was actually incorporate like the light rigging like at the, at the top of the set mm-hmm. into the set. And that's where he and um, the other fella kind of were like, uh, this is no, no, like Graham Harper just got odd and it was, a, it was the whole thing. Okay. Um, the story originally opened with an attack on the privateer by an Antonian killer, uh, which would lead to the ship becoming trapped at the gateway. Ultimately decided to go a different route with that. In terms of Lala being unhappy with the script, she was also unhappy with her leaving scene. She thought it was way too rushed. But both John Nathan Turner and Christopher Bidmead didn't want the series to turn into a soap opera. Lala apparently loathed the story as it was her last, but she was pleased that she got an open-ended departure, at least, so that further work could be done with her character, if um, possible, in the future. Mm-hmm. In terms of inspirations for the story, Stephen Gallagher was influenced by a radio serial he'd done in 1979 called The Babylon Run, as well as the films of John Cocteau, such as Orphe, in which mirrors provide a gateway into another world. He also drew upon elements of The Demolished Man and The Forever War. Freddie Earle, whose name is spelt with two L's, accepted this role without seeing the script because he wanted so badly to do Doctor Who. But his name was misspelled on screen as Earl with one L in all four episodes. Which is sad. Radio Times, though, did spell his name correctly. Mm. A crewman named Nestor was excised from the script. His lines were then shared between Lane and Packard. The Gundans, or Gundans, whatever you're calling them, uh, were originally Shoguns, uh, or simply Guns, was also considered. can kind of understand why they didn't go with that route. Although, like, I, I think they actually do have a slightly samurai aesthetic to their helmets. Hmm. Yeah, which is probably where it came from. Hmm. Um, as for the Tharls, they were originally named Tharks, then Thars, then Tharls. But ultimately it was changed to Tharls at the suggestion of Ian Levine, who thought that longtime fans would confuse them with the Thals, which a lot of fluffers hmm. in that list of names. One of the things in relation to the script and Tom and Lala's issues um, Mm. was a quote from Paul Joyce who said, I don't think even Tom Stoppard or Harold Pinter could have written a scene that would have satisfied that would have satisfied both Tom and Lala at that point. (sighs) Um, Apparently, Stephen Gallagher based the rundown crew on his former colleagues at Granada Television. Uh, To me, they are reminiscent of a different crew that we'll talk about later, I'm sure. Um, given the way that we both think, probably. Yeah. <laughs> as this was also K9's last story, Stephen Gallagher was credited in his local paper as the man who killed K9. You son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. Um, another potential influence, though it's never cited as being an influence of the story, um, is the Blake 7 episode, City at the Edge of the World, which 
was from season three of Blake Seven, which aired on the 11th of February 1980. Um, it has very marked similarities. A crew of villainous space pirates led by a deranged obsessive captain, a subjugated race of, myth- of mystical beings who covertly manipulate events to gain the upper hand while demoting the regular cast to mere catalyst in their scheme. And most markedly of all, a mysterious portal or force field that repels all brute force, but which does not deter the villain of the piece from trying to break it with stronger and stronger means until he eventually kills himself in a backblast. Hmm. I can see the similarities, right? Yes. Barak and Laszlo were named after Academy Award winning cinematographers Joseph Barak and Ernest Laszlo. Rorbeck and Sagan were named after American author- authors David Rorbeck who wrote the 1978 hoax in his image, The Colony of a Man, while astrophysicist Carl Sagan was best known for his 1977 Pulitzer Prize winner, The Dragons of Eden, Speculations on the Evolution of Human Intelligence. Every time that person's name was mentioned, all I could think of was Carl Sagan. I didn't know, (laughs) so I was right. (laughs) Paul Joyce envisaged making the story in the style of a feature film, and so he was really enthusiastic about pushing the boundaries of what could be accomplished. However, he was concerned about, like I said, Stephen Gallagher's inexperience in writing for television, which resulted in the scripts that would not translate well to a visual medium. Like I said, a lot of issues with scripting, a lot of issues with production. Originally in the script, Rorvik allowed Barak to escape so that he could lead the slavers to a Time Lord, which I kind of prefer the way it was done mm. in the story ultimately. And the story originally concluded with Rorvik and his crew becoming phantasmal entities. For the gateway sequence, the black and white photographs of Powell's castle in Powys. It's in Wales, I've mispronounced it. P-O-W-S. Whatever. Hmm. Uh, were used to represent the world beyond the mirrors. The first studio session was intended to concentrate on, see- on scenes aboard the privateer. There was an immediate delay when Paul Joyce's decision to incorporate, as I said, the studio lighting gantry into the spaceship drew objections from John Dixon, who was in charge of lighting. Recording was delayed for two hours and Joyce came close to relieving Dixon of his duties. Only a small number of scenes ended up being recorded. Originally, part two was going to close with the Doctor disappearing through the mirror, but it was decided that Romana's terror at the injured Laszlo was much more cinematic. Hmm. In scenes cut from parts two and three, Adric would have been shown having actually used the detached ear from K9 to try and triangulate where they're going, which did mean that K9 should have been missing an ear during the scenes in the banquet hall, but no one remembered. I was wondering about that. Like, I yeah. I had to go back and rewatch that scene a couple of times to make sure that I, like, I had seen Adric take away one of the ears. Yeah. Um... Following this serial stressful production, Christopher Bidme decided not to stay on as script editor. He felt he was expending too much time and energy on the show without suitable respect or reward, and his working relationship with John Nathan Turner was beginning to sour. His decision became final when his request for a substantial raise was rejected. Like I've said, this was the final appearance of Lala Ward as Romana and John Leeson as K-9, or at least their final regular appearance. Romana does appear again in the 1993 charity special Dimensions in Time, and she is in a number of audio productions. So this isn't really the last we see of Romana mm. as such. I, I have heard that her Gallifrey series with Louise Jameson as Leela is, is highly recommended. 
Mm, I see it referenced a lot in fix. Like it's just accepted as canon mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, the one thing that's interesting, I can't find a definitive reason as to why Lala left. Yeah. Most sources I found just seemed to say that it was because of tensions on set. Um, I've seen one or two saying that it was just her contract was over and she decided not to renew it. Um, not much really made of it. Um, as for K9, this this was kind of weird because we mentioned before John Leeson left the show, so he wasn't in it last season. And then he came back for this season, apparently on the understanding that in the end, K9 will be killed off. Hmm. Obviously, that didn't happen. And K9 will see again in the future with John doing the voice forever at this point. Hmm. Um, so that was kind of weird. Like that that's one of the things that Jonathan Turner did to get John Leeson to come back to do the voice to say, oh, we'll kill him off at the end. And then they obviously left it open ended. So that didn't happen. Um so with K9, this is the last we'll see of him for now. We will see him again in Doctor Who during the 10th Doctor. Actually, no. I jumped way too far ahead. We'll see him again in a season and a half. Uh, for- well, we'll see him as K9 and Company. Well, yeah, but that's not that's oh, not. Wait, in the- I, th- I think it's like a slight cameo appearance in The Five Doctors. Yeah, but he's in it though. Yeah. yeah. Um. He's also in multiple spin-offs, so Sarah Jane Adventures and Canine Company, as we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about our guest cast this week. So, as Rorvik, we have Clifford Rose. This is the only on-screen Doctor Who credit for Clifford, though he was also in the Big Finish production story, The Scapegoat. His Doctor Who credits include Callan, Roads to Freedom, Love's Labour's Lost, and The Iron Lady. Clifford passed away in 2021. Packard, who, like, seriously, every time they said his name, I just kept thinking of the invasion. Yeah, Packer. <laughs> uh, so Packer is played by Kenneth Cope. Is the only on-screen Doctor Who credit for Kenneth. His non-Who credits include Randall and Hopkirk deceased, Coronation Street, Carry On at Your Convenience, and Truckers. He's also in a movie that I loved as a kid. Uh, it's a movie about Genghis Khan, which has zero Asian actors, and oh, sorry, one one Asian actress. The rest is, mm. I would say, 10% unfortunate yellow face. But everyone else is just Fu Manchu mustaches, and that's it. Oof. Oof. Also, horribly, horribly inaccurate movie, but it's still just so much, it's so entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he played uh, Subutai, one of Genghis Khan's brother-in-laws. He actually, he actually is really good in that movie. Good to know. Mm. Good to know. Lane is played by David Kincaid. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for David. His non-Who credits include The Taming of the Shrew, Timon of Athens, and Worship. David passed away in 2010. Aldo is played by the previously mentioned Freddie Earl. This is the only on-screen Doctor Who credit for Freddie. His non-Who credits include the 1988 film The Bourne Identity, Alice's Adventure in Wonderland, The Bill, and London's Burning. He was actually, I don't know if it was before or after the story, uh, that he was the father-in-law of Christopher Bidmead. So I don't know if that happened before or after the story. Uh, Freddie passed away in 2007. As Royce, we have Harry Waters, only Doctor Who appearance for Harry. His John Who credits include The Taming of the Shrew, Antony and Cleopatra, King Lear, and Lytton's Diary. 
And lastly, as Barak, we have David Weston. This is the second and final appearance for David. We previously discussed David way back when, when he played Nicholas Moss in The Massacre. Oh. His character is not coming to mind, but I checked my notes when we did discuss him at the time. His character, (laughs) because I actually kind of went back and I looked at our comments on The Massacre, and his character, I don't know if you really remember, but they're on the Protestant side, you had two main characters and then you had their their servants and we kind of said the servants were like two sides of the same coin. One was hot-headed and aggressive, one was more calm and collected. He played the more calm and collected one. Oh, I don't remember that character. Mm. Um, I barely remember what happened last week. So... Story summary and trivia complete. It is now down to the character discussion. So, as always, we have the Doctor. Mm-hmm. We have our companions, which this week is Romana, Adric, and K9. Would you give any story-based companions this week, Paddy? No. Cool. Prominent characters? I put down just Birok mm-hmm. as the only prominent character in my eyes because... Everyone else, so the other people I put down were Rorvik, Packard, Lane, and Aldo and Royce because they're free, those two frequently come up and we can put them together. Mm-hmm. I put them all into the villain category. I would probably, the only people from that group that I would maybe put as prominent characters is Aldo and Royce. That's only because they're more background to the main crew's actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, like I. I was thinking about that as well, and it's kind of like, for me, just with with the content of the story, it was a fine line, but like, hmm. they reminded me of, do you remember that robot chicken sketch of like the janitor that key, that he's at the bottom of um, like the shaft when Darth Maul's corpse falls down, and he's like, I gotta get that transfer to Coruscant, and then he's there for me, so he's like, I gotta get that transfer to the Death Star. Hmm. Um, yeah, like, so he kind of, they kind of reminded me of that character. Well, yeah, we can put them into prominent characters. If, well, because, what's the other discussion, guys? Yeah. Because the other fuckers are all in the villain category. Yeah. Um, so, doubling back around, you did socials. Therefore, hmm. you go first. So, hmm. thoughts on the Doctor? So, for me, this is another story that we get a lot of the typical Tom Doctor behavior. You know, mm. uh, curiosity, um, uh, irreverent humor in a very dangerous situation. Um, uh, but the overall content of the story for him is, to me, it's kind of meh. Like, it's mm. not super engaging. Like, the I think the only time that... I really enjoyed it was whenever he was talking to Birok because mm. you can kind of see like just those really good conversations where Tom would speak to um a, like either a, like either a villain or an antagonistic prominent character mm. but the problem is that those interactions are very curtailed because he has to engage with Rorvik, who is the main villain of the piece, 
but is a, to me is a much less interesting character. Mm. And I think that kind of hurts my engagement with the Doctor in this story. I think he was paired up too long with the wrong person. Mm. Uh, I did like his, I did like his interactions with K nine, because I think he's gone from the early days of treating, well, the inconsistency of treating K nine as a tool, because here he rationalizes with him like K nine, I know that your power levels are low, but if you give it to the Gundam, then he could get us home, you know, mm. um, or even the bit there where K nine nearly trundles through the. The, the mirror and he go he goes off to stop him because he knows that at that point K9 will never be able to come back mm. so I liked that part of it now that being said he does kind of hand him off fairly easily to, <laughs> but again I think it's at that stage he knows that K9 would be safer with Romana because again he'll be healed and he'll be all better again Um. yeah so I think that's pretty much it for me where it's just like typical Tom but there's nothing super engaging about it mm. how about you so for me like the story similar to last week had a couple of things that sort of kind of didn't sit right with me mm. I don't know what it is I don't know if it's because of just the way the stories are written I don't know if it's the way the stories are shot or the pacing or whatever but I never had an issue in stories with Sarah Jane or stories with Leela of the doctor going off on his own. Mm-hmm. Do you know, and not being with the companion for a prolonged period of time. Because in this story, like he's really not with them for ages. Yeah. Right? And I never really had an issue with it before, but somehow this story, it was the same last week. It seems that he's in a completely different story half the time. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Um, and I'm I'm finding it a bit weird. Do you know? And like I said, you know, some of that was because they needed to keep Lala and Tom apart before they got back together and stuff like that. But and obviously Tom is ill, so that it does need to be taken into consideration in terms of the performance. But it just seems weird, and I don't know. I don't know what it is about it that him being separate all the time comes off as strange um i said there were a few things i liked i did like his concern for k9 um you know particularly when he was like if i bring k9 through the mirror he'll be better and you know um because like yeah when you bring him back he'll break again um so i liked his concern there I, i did find his handing him off at the end a bit strange because I thought it was because he needed the memory disc thing. Hmm. And like surely the doctor could just rebuild him from scratch. But ultimately he does because he sends one to Sarah Jane. But um, I thought that was weird. For the rest of the story though, I do like the doctor and Barak scenes together. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, I don't think there's enough of them. And yeah. Barak is quiet for too long for Tom to have a good a good riff, a good rapport with him. Mm. I think they would have been really good together. I just don't think we've got enough of it to say that definitively. Mm-hmm. Um, his interactions with um, Rorvik and that lot, I just thought was like, okay, move on. Like it was just mm. chewing the scenery. Um, 
a bit on both sides. And like he didn't spend that long with Rorbeck. Do you know what I mean? Really. Um, but it just seemed like too long, to your point. Um, then he made a comment and I was just like, the noblest of all Romanas. Really, Doctor? That's what you're going to say to her? <sighs> okay. Fair enough. We'll talk about that one in a minute. Um, but I think for me, what struck me in this story more so than the other two East Bay stories is... Do you remember watching that episode of Big of the Big Bang Theory where, um, oh, what's her name? Penny Sheldon's Penny. girlfriend or whatever. Oh, Amy. Yeah. Um. Basically, like, oh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a stupid film because if Indiana Jones had never been there, the same thing would happen. Yeah. Um. Well, a I disagree with that assessment of Raiders. That's a separate thing. I also disagree with most of what they've said and did in Big Bang Theory. Um, this story feels like that for me. It's very weird having our main characters and having the Doctor in a story where had he not been there, the story would have gone exactly the fucking same. Yeah. He did nothing. He changed nothing. He contributed nothing. Hmm. Literally. like The only thing that he did was draw attention to the mirror Mm. that was really it um and that like again there are certain stories where that's not bad do you know Mm um you know you have something like you know in the aztecs where it's like you can't save Mm. the aztecs they were always due to doomed to that actually the, the one that we mentioned earlier on the massacre yeah um, but the doctor was brilliant in that, so yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but so there are times when it works for like all of the characters in the story. There are times when it works, but this it just didn't work. Mm. Do you know? And it seemed like a really cheap, half-assed way to get them out of e-space. Like I would have much rather the doctor face off against the time lords. In defense of Romana and her decision not to return to Gallifrey, mm. like I, I would have much rather that story, yeah, for the like, Doctor this than is the, thing the is, one we got here. Like I think the story. No, I don't know whether it was just generally or maybe just me. It's a bit too confusing because the Gundan says that the the only way to get out of Espace is through the mirror, the the void itself or the archway. And mm. it said that, the gun, but the Gundam said as well like that, it could never, like, they they were never able to follow the Tarles through the gateways. Yet then one of them gets up and goes through the mirror, which we're told is a gateway. But then that doesn't actually lead into real space. It just leads into this weird pocket area that's seemingly set in the past of the current thing. Yeah, it's 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 very strange. It, yeah. It's very strange. And like I said, we don't have the Doctor explaining any of that to us. No. Which he normally would. Mm. Um, and again, because he's separated from his companions for so long. Um, and like I said, it just... It feels like that episode of Big Bang Theory is like, well, had he not been there? Because like, if you mm. had the Doctor not been there, Birok still would have passed out. Mm-hmm. 
he would have seen the gateway. Mm-hmm. He still would have tried to escape, except he would have run to the gateway instead of running to the TARDIS. Presumably they would have still gone after him. Because they would have seen the gateway on the memory mm. screen thing. They probably would have seen him go through the mirror at some point, and then they would have tried the same thing, and the same thing would have happened. They would have used the back. Well, actually, last, whatever. Wait, I, I, I actually, I don't know because the whole thing was that they kept killing all the other Tharals when they were waking them up. So mm. they only found the archway because they put Romana in the chair. So maybe if the doctor and the crew had but Yeah, but if there, they had gone to find that other one, or if they'd put any one of the other Tharals in the chair, that would have had the same impact. Oh yeah, but like they would have to had time to like wake a Tharal up properly rather than killing it as in an attempt to wake it up. Yeah, but Yeah. Ultimately they still would have found it because if nothing else the space would have continued contracting. Yeah, the space would have continued to contract. I think the only So they the, they would could have looked at a window. Yeah. I think it's just a case of the number of tarals that would have died. Yeah. Um so fine thing, the doctor's presence had a potentially negative effect. Mm, which yeah. not. Um but yeah, I I just think that while there was some nice Tom moments, like him talking to Gundam and his interaction with K nine and in fairness, like Romana's departure it was shit and abrupt. Hmm. I'd arguably say it was better than Leela's. Oh yeah, like that. Like Romana got a much better send off than characters that are more developed than she is. Yeah, so I mean that wasn't too bad, and like his reaction to it was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the only person that I don't actually have much to say about his introduction is Adric. Yeah. I haven't really seen them form a connection yet, which I'm hoping we get next story because it's weird that this is now Adric's third story and Adric and the Doctor I don't think have ever had a proper conversation. No. Which is weird. Okay, let's go on to our companions. Mm-hmm. So, Romana, Adric, K9. So usually we do the departing companion last. Mm-hmm. This time we have two. Yes. So do you want to do Adric first? Yes, yes. So, tonight the role of Harvey Dent, Two-Face, will be played by Adric. (laughs) Like, I actually don't have a whole lot to say about Adric in this story. Hmm. Because for a vast majority of it, he's just flipping a coin in the void and he's doing nothing. He is... And then when he comes back into the story, he fills the role that... Susan would have filled, which was that is the knowledge avatar for the audience. Hmm. You know, like why is the why are the engines so big? Oh, it's dwarf star alloy, which is really really dense. Oh, so that would mean that the why they have such big engines. Yes, all the better to black blast you with my dear. Um, like. <laughs> I I I really don't have a whole lot to say. I did like the scene where he was like, "I don't know what these levers do, but I do know that it's aimed at you," and he's there mm. with the the MZ dish. Um, yeah, it's just I I honestly I don't think I have anything because he just didn't make an impact on me in the entire story. Mm. So for me, I I get what 
I didn't actually mind the coin flipping thing. I didn't mind it either, but it would have been better if there was more context given to the coin flips. Yeah, and it would also be better if anyone had spoken to him about his coin flipping. Yeah. Because he clearly picked it up from the Doctor and Romana talking. Neither of them spoke to him directly about it. Mm -hmm. He got the information from K9. And so he starts coin flipping. He's like, fuck it, we'll just flip a coin. I'll press this button and that's what gets them into the situation in the first place, right? Mm. So we do have Adric to get the story going, right? He was the one who, who did the coin flip. And him using it to wander the void, I actually don't mind either. Because it's a void. Left, right, up, down. Where do I go? Flip a coin, doesn't matter. Let fate or whatever guide your path. Mm. Which, given the fact that in this story, the end result was predetermined in a way. Mm-hmm. It actually makes sense. What I don't like is that we don't see him have any good interactions with anybody else. The closest thing to a good interaction he has is with K9. Mm-hmm. And K9 goes sideways quite quickly, so that doesn't really work. But there's a couple of things that I couldn't help but sort of laugh at. It was like, Adric, when someone asks you to hand them a box, don't just dump the contents on the floor. The fuck is that? You, you and when someone act- tells you to keep an eye on the screen and watch for a specific signal, stupid as that signal may have been, then keep your eyes on the bloody screen. Like, there were some things here where I think they were trying to make him childish. Mm-hmm. But again, it's like we were saying the other week like with the Wesley Crusher thing. When you try to make a very intelligent character act their age, it's mm-hmm. often written and filmed and shot as if they're stupid or like this is a 40 year old man trying to write a 15 year old character's response yeah. or something like that um because like i said other than that and the, di- the di- i don't know what the sleeper does think that was that was quite interesting but like we don't have like romana talks to him a bit but it's usually talking at him yeah not with him not with him and the closest thing she came to a real conversation with him was about when they returned to Gallifrey mm, um, but you get the sense that Adri- that Romana doesn't even want him to come so yeah it's, it's a very truncated conversation um, yeah. actually I just remembered something there was that so we talked about in full circle Adric's intuition and like this the the feel you know the feelings he gets like you know I'm not supposed to be here I'm supposed to mm. and we were thinking like, like is it like where we talk about latent latent psychic thing is it a part of the Alzerians um evolutionary process you know your whole red pin pill analogy mm. but that seems to be stripped away in favor of the coin tossing here. I would have liked mm. to have actually seen the whole thing of I feel like we should go this way. Or I feel like that this is the right option to take rather than going through the coin flipping process. Yeah. Or, I, or at least a, um, an internal conflict because, you know, oh, this coin flipping thing sounds interesting. It flips the coin, turns the switch, which seemingly rectifies something. Mm. But then it's like the coin flipping doesn't seem to be getting me anywhere. But then I said this intuition that I should keep coin flipping. Just like, I think this it was just a thing of like the person um sorry 
the guy that wrote this, uh, I'd have to take a look at the name again. Stephen. Stephen didn't know how to write a large TARDIS crew or a large protagonist crew. Yeah. Yeah, because what I'm getting by this point is <clears throat> I think we had a good Adric in full circle. I think he was an interesting character. Mm. You wanted to know more about him. The last two stories, we haven't... Well, last week was weird Adric. Yeah. Like, whatever. It, this week, said, there's no character in Adric. Like, he, he doesn't have a character. He is yeah. just there. He is a body take up place. Last week, we said the, the, the concept of Adric in that story was good on paper, but just the execution mm. didn't really do it justice. Yeah. So, Whereas here, it's as if they didn't have a concept on paper. Yeah. It's almost like the story was written for just Romana and K9. Yeah. And they divorced Adric into it somehow. Yeah. Which may not be incorrect, but I don't know. It just it just seems a bit sh- shit. Like mm. he doesn't have a character in the story. Yeah, he's just someone there sucking air. That's it. Yeah. Do you want to do the bestest boy or uh, I, next? I th- I think we we have to do the right thing and put Romana last and have K nine be next on the list. But my why is that the right thing? Oh, not the right thing. The expected thing. But fuck it, it's okay. our show. Will we do K9 last? Up to you. Fuck it, we'll do K9 last. <laughs> <laughs> he's a companion too. He is a companion too. John Leeson for life. And he's been around longer, so... Yes. No. Yeah, fuck it. Okay, Romana. Uh, Romana. A clipboard? Really? Like, I don't... Like, this is... Because, like, you know me, I, like... I, I like watching pro wrestling. This is the most pro wrestling fucking thing I've ever seen where like, you attempt to knock the person out with a clipboard, but she ends up just like patting them on the back with it. It's so fucking it, it's bad. Like pro wrestling moves done by Teletubbies. Yeah, she grabbed the clipboard, yeah. hit him in the head, Romana. Yeah. Don't just tap him on the back. Like, I'm sure your daughter could belt the crap out of you with a clipboard way more than Romana did. She could belt the crap out of me fucking with her just any with her fists. <laughs> She's got a very powerful right hook. Um and it's a, like to a more I guess well serious thing. Like she got a better ending than more developed characters that we liked. Mm. Like on a on a personal level, I think Joe is a better character than Romana too. Joe got shafted in her ending on my yep. personal tastes. You know, I've seen other people say that it's a great ending, but no. Um, same way with Leela. Leela, a character mm. I love. Shitty ending. Oh, I've mm. just randomly fallen in love with this guy I've only met uh, in the last 50 minutes. Um, this is akin to the Stephen ending. Yep. Like this. Now, I will say, though, that. Romana is probably a bit more deserving of the plaudits and trust for that ending. Mm. But that being said, no, it's still kind of... When we talk about our rambling next week, it will be very difficult to fully um, get on board with this deserving of an ending. Um, Because like, in the context of this story... I, I, I do like Romana. I think they, I like her refusal to entertain abandoning the, the Tharals at any stage of the the, the the situation. Like, 
the whole place is shrinking, it's coming on part. It was like, no, we still need to go back and save them. Um, I like the little callback to the rescue attempt with Adric, you know, from State mm. of the K, where she's like, I'm rescuing you. And I, I, that was like, why didn't we get more of that in this story? Why couldn't mm. they just have been partnered up? Um, also, don't, especially in the scene where she first meets Rorick, uh, Rorvik, Packard, and Lane, this is the most Tom I've ever seen Lala act. Mm. Like it's it's very very Tom like. Mm. Um. But yeah, so like, I. For the most part, I I enjoyed her in this story. I do agree mm. that the ending was a bit rushed. Um, it reminds me of the Myth Makers with Vicky. You know, mm. just like we'll just tack on a scene rather than. And like John Nathan Turner and Christopher Bymead's thing of like, we don't want it to become a soap opera. It's like, I don't necessarily like, okay. I do, yes, I agree with the the idea that Doctor Who is not a soap opera. Okay. Mm-hmm. However, you can have emotional beats in it. Like, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say Sarah Jane's departure is soap opera ish. I wouldn't say that Ian and Barbara's departure is soap opera ish. Mm. I just think it's it's well written sci fi, or it's, it's mm. well written television, whatever way you want to classify it as. So I don't necessarily agree with the the idea behind it. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's really kind of it for me for Romana. So for me for Romana for this one, um, this seems like. Someone went back to the original draft for Romana 2 mm-hmm. and was like, okay, this is what Romana 1 was like. This is what we want Romana 2 to be like. She should grow to be more like the Doctor. She should grow to be more empathetic. Um, the fact that she was caring about the slaves on the ship mm-hmm. is great. Very reminiscent of the Horns of Lymon, which mm-hmm. I said before was one of my favourite Romana two outings um spoilers for next week um <laughs> but it seems like they were trying to go oh look we never actually developed this character let's just do that now yeah do you know we'll have her behave like the doctor we'll have her say and do stupid shit that makes no sense um like the whole oh the signal i'm going to give you is slowly putting two hands above my head joining my fingers together and then putting my hands behind my back no, like, wave or something, you weirdo. Like, don't make it so complicated and so slow. Mm. Don't make it so slow. Um, her entire interaction with Rorvik and his crew is so very much her trying to impersonate the Doctor. It's mm. her, like, you almost expect her to come out in, like, Tom, because you see Tom's old outfit mm-hmm. hanging on uh coat hanger you always expect her to come out wearing the outfit and trying to pretend that she's the doctor it came across as really really false mm-hmm. and then later on when we have her like initial reaction like that's like the the closing uh shot of episode two and then you know attacking robert with the clipboard it's just come across as incredibly weak 
mm-hmm. which she isn't necessarily. Like, I don't think I think we would have described her as very weak before. No. Um, you know, she wasn't usually the screaming damsel, do you know? Um, so I, I thought it was a bit weird that that's what they were going for in this story. Um, and then in terms of the ending, like, it's great that she repeatedly is like, but there's slaves on the ship, there's slaves on the ship. That's great. Um, but the ending of, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to work with Barak to rescue the remains of his people. Why? Why does Barak need you? The guy can walk through timelines. Like, why Why does he need your help? Um, And what made you suddenly decide that that's something you're going to want to do? Because bearing in mind, her interaction with Barak and his people is limited to two people. First of all, Barak and the mm. other guy, whose name I've forgotten. Laszlo. Laszlo. And she didn't have a whole lot to do with them. I'm like, so why are you staying? Do you know, you're going to stay in e-space forever. Slowly, like, I, I don't know. Like, it's not undeserved in the sense that we felt Stephen's um, story was undeserved. It just wasn't natural. See, the thing, there, there is like a asterisk to this, which is that okay, yes, you have grown and learned from the Doctor and you're off pursuing a noble cause. But you're pursuing a noble cause in an area of space that Gallifrey cannot access. And you have yeah. repeatedly mentioned in the in the previous three stories, you do not want to go back to Gallifrey. Mm. So is there a small bit of the, you know, Mayfane in this action? Yeah. So, like, I, I, I didn't buy it, um, and I felt that the story in general was trying to get a season and a half worth of character development cemented in one story, so people remember Romana as being someone who cared for slaves and someone who, you know, is very time sensitive and is flippant like the Doctor and can do like, like no, that's not the character you've been showing us this whole time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah get over it like and then we have the bestest boy my poor bestest boy he I really didn't... does get he does really, really does get put through the ringer here like his circuits get fried he gets kicked he gets thrown and i have to laugh because that scene reminded me of muppet's christmas carol when uh scrooge throws out your man he's like thank you for not <laughs> shouting at me <laughs> um yes yeah, so he really gets a rough dose uh, but an important point I'd like to make: you are never useless, ever. Mm. Um, and I think this is a this is a good outing for for K nine under John. And like, I'm not just saying mm. it because it's his last story, but it's genuinely how I feel. He does a really good job at playing. Like, no, John has always done a really good job at playing K nine when K nine is hurt or damaged. Because you forget that it's a prop. Hmm. He he's really good at blurring that line, and credit must also be given to the to the operator, because hmm. the whatever weird tandem magic the two of them have together, it, it's what they do. They create magic. They create a living, breathing character that isn't a robotic prop. To me, anyway. Um. 
And here we have some really good moments from K9. Like we talked about the conversation he had with the doctor rationalizing uh, my power levels are low. I may not mm. be able to. And I don't think it, like, I never read it as him being selfish for himself, but more along the lines of if my power levels are depleted, I can't render assistance to you. Mm. And then there was, for a lot of the other characters, it was an annoyance until he got to the doctor. And it was like, um, I want to say like maybe Cassandra from Troy, like mm. shouting, the fucking world is falling apart around us. Will someone please listen to me and tell me mm. what to do to help, you know? Yeah. Um, I like, you know, it, 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 it's cute. You know, the way he says, orders, orders, master, orders, and he's following after anyone. But there is the sense, the underlying sense of urgency and danger to it, excuse mm. me, because he is trying to highlight we don't have much long left. And that's why I really like the reunion section between himself and the doctor as well, because I think Tom did it wonderfully. That was the mm. thing I should have put for the doctor is that he handled that section wonderfully. So, yeah, um, this was a very strong outing for K9 for me, despite everything that he went through. Yeah. I think I agree with you that, like, as a performance by John, I mm. think this was very, very good. Mm. Um, I think the way he played it, and it, I think it particularly shows in how he bounced off Adric, mm-hmm. where Adric wasn't sure if K9 was being loopy or serious. Yeah. Do you know? Because with K9, it all sounds the same. Mm. Um, you know, I took... I agree with you that he's not useless he is never useless but poor mm-hmm. k9 trying to admit that he was um or not even that he was useless that he was less than useless um i like i found it really funny that like damaged k9 like obviously he has his ear sensors mm-hmm. he also apparently has a sensor in his tail yeah. he was going everywhere arse backwards um <laughs> or arse forwards as it were um I, I think ultimately i think as a k9 exit story I think this was really good because mm. again it kind of shows a character devolving from being the most helpful relied upon character mm. devolving into insanity essentially mm-hmm. but then like you said having those Cassandra moments of the sky is falling yeah someone tell me what to do um but you kind of get the sense that like his circuits are so fried and he's so back to front that like he's asking everyone and anyone had anyone given him an order to do anything he would have stopped it if it had been like you know K9 go shoot the man he'd be like okay because like he his mind was so fried so i think as a K9 departure story i think it was really good um i do think again he was fobbed off a bit too quickly but they had kind of set up the whole like he'll be fine in the in-between space mm-hmm. which i still don't really understand because yeah, because like the e space was making him sick mm. so surely n space would make him well but, but apparently thing... it's not n space he needs it's the in-between he needs and the thing as well is that like he he can't go and help Romana and Verak save Tharals because he has to remain in the in-between space now. Yeah, but he has all the knowledge to rebuild the TARDIS, so that will do. I, yeah. I don't know. I, 
I loved all the build up to it. Mm-hmm. It's just the execution at the end. Like the whole ending was very, very rushed. But I think for a K9 story, I think this was very good. I think mm-hmm. K9 got the most consistent, proper development mm-hmm. out of our companions and the doctor as well. Um, because everything he does here, like with Romano, you was saying that like they were trying to get a year and a half worth of development into one story because they realized mm-hmm. they hadn't developed her and now she's about to leave. For K9, it was just cementing who K9 is. And mm-hmm. I feel really bad for K9, the character, and kind of for John, the actor, although like I know he was saying that he wanted to kill K9 off. But like really, he came back, and this season, people have just been treating K9 like a punching bag. Mm-hmm. Which I don't agree with, and I don't understand why they did like your man picked him up and flung him out of shot Mm -hmm. i'm like what is the what's the deal with that like what was it with the heads at the bbc or with the production at the bbc where they were like we have this character we find him really annoying but we have to keep him for some reason so we're just going to torture him because he's not a real person he's a prop Mm-hmm. So we can torture him and knock his head off and burn out his circuits and have everyone call him names and I'm like, leave him alone. Leave him alone. And it's like, it is an interesting thing about K9 because like the Mark One, like chose to stay behind with Leela, or did he still hmm. choose to stay behind, or did the Doctor tell him to stay behind? Uh, Can't remember. Give me a sec there. I'm actually going to take a look, mm. but like. The Mark II has been through an awful lot. If you go back through everything, he, hmm. um, like between the Keith Time story and then obviously going on the adventures with the new Romana and then everything that's happened to him, like you almost get the impression like the Doctor gave him to Romana under the, the knowledge that like he'll never be able to come past the... Um, the mirrors again but at least he'll be happy now almost like a sort mm. of like a bilbo going to the great yeah. havens type thing yeah because like i mean the mark one was great yeah the, uh sorry the, the mark one chose to stay behind to look after Leela. yeah so the mark one was great but the mark one was Leela's dog yeah the mark two in the key to time was the doctor's dog but did have a good relationship with romana too mm-hmm. over time then we change to Mark 2.1, which is not John, the other guy. Uh, David B. Uh, Davis Briars. Yeah. Which was different. Mm-hmm. And now we've got the Mark 2.2, essentially, which is back to John again. And it just seems to be a punching bag. And like, the thing is that, like, I, I get it. People are going to be like, Trish, it's a robot dog. Get over it. I'm like, but no, like, the whole thing with John's performance is that he's made it a character. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't treat a flesh and blood character the way the writers treat K9. Mm. And so it makes me angry. Yeah. Because he's like, the it's... bestest boy and he deserves better. But, like, it's in the sense of. Like, there's there's a lot of really good sci-fi out there where, it, like, robots, artificial life forms, artificial intelligence, it reaches that point in time where, like, it's going to be killed off. But the way that it's written or the way that it's acted or the way that it's done, it can get you to realize that, Jesus, there is a semblance of 
humanity or soul or whatever like there and having it you know losing it that is kind of sad yeah like i mean if you compare k9 to like other popular media robots or androids or whatever mm. i think like the, the easiest ones are like c3po and r2d2 right yeah where r2d2 doesn't talk no but you get the sense that he is a being mm-hmm. c3po doesn't shut up and he's very annoying yeah but the difference is that, like, K9 is such a, an interesting mix between those two characters because he does talk and he has a personality and whatever, but he is also, by his nature, submissive. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Whereas 3PO isn't. He, he likes to pretend he is, but he actually isn't. He's a big giant pain in the hole. Um, and so, like, when something bad happens to 3PO, you kind of don't mind because he's an asshole. Yeah. But K9 isn't. He's a puppy mm-hmm. and they keep doing horrible things to him. Mm-hmm. It would be like <laughs> someone doing something horrible to what is BD uh, or you know, no Cal's BD. little thing. Oh. BD1. 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 Yeah. yeah. Can you BD. imagine someone doing this to BD1? Yeah. He's a puppy. Leave him alone. Like. <laughs> Although one thing that came into my head was um, by the end of the story, you know, all the stuff that he's been through. Do you remember at the end of uh, Terminator 2 where the T-800 goes, I need a vacation? <laughs> yeah. Then, yeah. Then, like, imagine, can I do that? Yeah. Like, the only thing that sort of was keeping me happy throughout this, I'm like, okay, so this is going to be the departure of the Mark II and the Doctor's going to build another one mm-hmm. for reasons. And said and send him to Sarah Jane mm-hmm. and she's going to take very good care of him and yeah. he's bestest boy I'm like yes. cool that's fine <laughs> I did actually once going completely off the tangent I read a fanfic once where it was to do with um, Sarah Jane asking the doctor like, why did you send me K9 mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll talk about it more when we talk about K9 company but um the doctor was like, oh, well, I was traveling with this savage and she wouldn't have understood. And I'm like, no, no. No, no, person who wrote this fanfic. The Mark 1 was Leela's dog. Yeah. <laughs> Leela completely understood. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, missed, you missed the other side there. But yeah. Um, K9 Mark 2, go off and have fun. Which mm. tells me that ultimately, because I haven't yeah. listened to the Big Finish audio, Unless Romana abandons K9 Mark II in the void when mm-hmm. she gets, once they've built like a time machine. If we take into account that Romana eventually gets back to Gallifrey and, you know, she's there with Leela and whatever, like, is what is done in Big Finish, they've got two K9s? Yeah, Mark II and Mark IV are still existing simultaneously. Well, no, but then, like, Leela has Mark I mm-hmm. and oh, Romana yeah. has Mark II. Oh, yeah, actually, yeah, you're right. Oh. We need we need to investigate. You need to investigate. <laughs> cool. So let's go on to our prominent characters. So mm-hmm. our prominent character mainly. Um so we have Burak and mm-hmm. then prominent characters into villains, we have um Aldo and Royce. So why don't you do Burak first, because he's our main prominent character. What were your thoughts on Burak? Um I'll be honest. And I think it's the like it's the nature of this story or the um, 
the theme of the story, which we'll probably discuss more so in the overall. But I found it very hard to get a read out of Barak. Very mm. hard. Because I don't know whether he is a broken person because of his the enslavement that he's been under. Or if he is just they're just he's just innately stone faced, mm. regardless of the situation that he finds himself in. Because everything is stated so matter of factly by him that at the end it is it is hard to tell if he's earnestly apologetic when he says to the doctor, like, you know, like we are guilty of what we did in the past. Mm. Or is it a case of will you fall back to what the Tharals once were once Romana helps you out enough? Yeah. Like once enough of the Tharals are freed again, will it be back to what once was? Or do yeah. have you legitimately learned from the past? But it's very hard to get a read on that because he is just so fucking stone. Like he's just so stone-faced. Hmm. So I think, I mean, part of that stone-facedness facedness, is, I think, the makeup, which literally keeps his face stuck in one position. Yeah. Um, but I think with Barak and with the Tharals in general, there is a moral grey area, which is oh, why yeah. Romana choosing to stay surprised me. Mm-hmm. Um, not that she... Again, I get her being concerned about the slaves. Again, Horns of Naiman. Mm-hmm. Great expression of that. Um, but... Birok and his people in general are in a morally grey area because if all we knew was that they were uh, people who were sensitive to time and humans tried to wipe them out and then when they realised how they could use them, they started capturing them and enslaving them and trading them, then I think... You'd be like 100% on Birok's side. You'd totally mm. understand Romana staying and whatever. But the fact that Birok guides the doctor to the old, like, back in time dinner or whatever, um, like, Birok's people were slavers. Mm-hmm. They saw everything in the universe as their property. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that we see one of them backhand some girl. Who, like, who, did, what the hell? Who, who did nothing wrong as well. Who did nothing just, wrong. Just backhanded her for the just sake backhanded of backhanded her. Just backhanded her because as opposed to saying no, that's enough wine, thank you very much. Um, it, it's an interesting day because like, do they deserve to be enslaved? No. And like Birok himself is like, have we not suffered enough? Mm. And it's like, yeah, but have you learned your lesson? And like the thing then is, is like we don't know enough about the Tharos. Like, are they a long-lived species? Because mm. how long ago was this scene in the past? Is it 20 mm. years? Is it 200 years? And yeah, there's the whole thing of like two wrongs don't make a right. Like you were slavers, so therefore you yourselves deserve to be enslaved. But like th- this whole thing of like, oh, should we be forgiven for our crimes? And it's like, well, ye- you are still that person that committed that crime. It's not like, should the descendants of, or like, I actually saw a thing there, someone brought up, it was a bit of a kind of a flippant response, but like, do you hold a person from the south of one of the southern states in America today personally responsible for 
the, the slave trade. Mm. And it's like that that particular like, I don't know if that's the right analogy to make or anything like that. Mm. But it, it's it is a this whole the outcome of the story is a very morally grey side of things. Yeah. And like I said, for me I think like Barak as a character being morally grey, don't take issue with. Yeah. But then them using that as the justification for Romana leaving. Mm-hmm. And suddenly Beric and Romana being very friendly. I'm like, did you two even have a fucking conversation? Beyond do nothing, it'll all work out. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think interesting character, but like, I'm going to jump the timeline massively and say another character that has an equal, not an equal, but has a similar Maori grey area is in the Sarah Jane Adventures story. Um, oh, I forgot the name of it. Um, I don't, the girl, the, the red girl with the ship. I forgot what the episode was called. I'm going to have to look it up now. It's going to work me. Hmm. Is that the uh, one that has her husband in it? Yes. Yeah. I can't think of it, but yeah, I know the story that you're on about. Uh, do, 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 do. Uh, Brian Miller was in The Mad Woman in the Attic. That's what it was. So, in this RJ Adventure story, The Mad Woman in the Attic, we meet a child, basically, mm-hmm. um, of a race who were sensitive to time and they were wiped out. And she and her ship, um, land on earth and she gets taken in by this nice man who's by Poseidon's husband but she wants to play and she has all these like telekinetic powers and so she uses it to force homeless people to play Mm -hmm. and she's not a bad person but there's that morally grey area of her using this power Mm -hmm. for her own entertainment whereas here like was it please like that character she was the last survivor she was like you know a kalel type thing you sent yeah. away in a pod whatever so it was understandable how she wouldn't know how best to control her powers because she had no one to show her birok from what i understand like my read of it is that he was an adult when this all started mm-hmm. like that he remembers everything that they saw in like the flashback period so it's like you know right from wrong and you did this anyway mm-hmm. and your people were enslaved and that is wrong that is wrong it is wrong do not mistake what i'm saying for anything other than that is wrong but i don't really feel sorry for him in the same way that i felt sorry for that character in the Madden mm. in the attic. Yeah. You know? No, no, I, I get I get what you're saying. I, I really do. Because it it it, it kind of screams of the whole No, oh, this uh well, this fucking sucks. How dare they do this to us <laughs> type yeah. shit, you know? And yeah. One thing I've been finding um I, I think we I, talked about it a lot over the last number of episodes not necessarily like sequentially we definitely talked about it last week but there seems to be this thing of where you have about two or three really good separate story elements 
that will work mm. much better by themselves. But unfortunately, you mash them together. Like, mm. if you wanted to do the whole thing of jumping through the past to the present to stop us from making this mistake, then just have it be the Tharals and have the human uprising with the Gundans and Vera coming to the future to help rectify the past or avert it, something like that. Or mm. then do a separate story of, as you said, hunting down time-sensitive beings. Mm. Um, yeah, it's just... Yeah, like this is such a morally grey story, and unfortunately, that's the the morally grey aspect of the story is the most interesting aspect of it. But it's almost like they created it without realizing that they created it. Mm. Yeah, I'd agree. So then we have the the two boys. (laughs) Uh, They are essentially a comic relief version of Parker and Brett from Alien. Yeah, and that's how that's how I read it. Yeah. Um, they, they, Aldo they, being the more uh, clued in of the two. Yeah, so kind of like Parker. Yeah. Um, you know, cheating. You mm. know, picking cards as it goes, but they also play off each other. It's like, oh yeah, I don't know. He, he has a bad leg. He has mm-hmm. a bad leg. We can't go. Or, oh, I, I, I my tummy hurts. I feel like I'm going to be sick. Oh, I'm going to go check on my friend. The two of them at least have each other's backs a bit. Mm -hmm. But like there was one bit that I had to laugh my ass off. It was very Chucker Brothers. It was when they were moving the MV or whatever it was. Yeah, MZ. And and all those like, uh, you pull, I push. Mm -hmm. And we're like, no, no, that's not fair. He's like, okay, how about this? I push you pull. Which is the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> but Royce is like, yeah, that, that's much better. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it felt like Chuckle Brothers meets Alien. Yeah. Um, do you, Would you call them villainous or villain by association? Villain by association because while they, ha- they don't have the stomach to necessarily go through the reviving process themselves, they don't have any seem to have any qualms about sitting down outside the room and having a cup of tea and playing the game of cards and mm. taking bets on how long the the tarots will last. Mm. So they're not they're they're not tragic victims caught up in this type of thing. They know no. what they're doing. So like they are the least villainous of the villains. Yeah. I think part of what makes them the least villainous as well is that they don't have a stake in the game. So it's mentioned several times that the Tharals are their slaves. They are stock. They are, um, you know, they're there to be sold. And so several mentions are made by Rorvik that, and by Packard that if a Tharal dies, then everyone's cut goes down. There's less yeah. profit to be made. Um, again, thinking alien, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for Aldo and Royce, they were paid up front. They were just brought on as manual laborers. Um, they're just the dogs' bodies doing whatever, and yeah, they have no issue taking bets on how long a Tharal will last. I think they—it's not that they have no issue sitting outside having a cup of tea. It's that they 
they couldn't bear to do it themselves. It's like, mm-hmm. I was going to go have a cup of tea now because I can't bear to fucking parse that. Um, does it make them good? No. But like, they aren't directly benefiting from what's happening. They're not making the decisions that are directing what's happening by the one guy they tried to wake up on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and then fucks it up. Um, like They are finding every way not to do <laughs> what it is they're being asked yeah. to do. So I think they're villains by association, but going back to a decision that they themselves made to join this crew, clearly knowing what they were doing, mm-hmm. and then the fact that they they never object to anything. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose like, if we have to, like, if we're putting the Marley Gray character of Virak into you know, into prominent character, then it's only fair that they also join him there. Yeah, and then we have our villains. So mm-hmm. Lane, Rorvik, and Packard. Or I suppose Lane, Packard, and Rorvik. I suppose yeah. like the the order of operations. That, that's the way I do it. Cool. So, what were your thoughts on Lane? Um, so Lane and Packard are very similar in the sense of they're both very competent at their jobs, more competent than it seems that Rorvik is, mm. but they're, they're both like Kif to Rorvik Zap Brannigan. Like mm. they're just kind of put upon by the, excuse me, the idiot in charge. Um, and it's like Rorvik, sorry, not Rorvik, Lane, like, you know, he seems to be a good engineer. He has his head screwed on right. He's the, f- and he's the first one to notice that the, the trips seem to be getting shorter mm. and shorter. Uh, so I think he's made, like, when you see it from Rorvik's eyes, he's just like a, a grease monkey, essentially. Mm. But when you see him outside of Rorvik's, a scene with Rorvik, you actually get to see that, oh no, he is an intelligent person. Mm. Uh, the only problem is, again, is that, like, what separates him from uh, Aldo and Royce and keeps him in line with Packard and Rorvik is that he shows no remorse for what they're doing to the Tharals. Mm. And as you said, again, there is the, the element of, like, the... Um, the profits from the slavering but like it's he never once the never and again i think maybe it's a fault in the story but it's never it's never really touched upon like with with these with the slavers mm. were they affected by the um, the taral empire like were they, are they like okay now we're in ascendancy, we can make a trade off this. Are they out- outsiders that are just literally hired to be part of the slave trade? We don't know what their stake in the game is. But they definitely don't seem to care over the fact that uh, they don't care if a tarot dies during the navigation process. They just care how many tarots die because, again, it's just motivated by money. Yeah. I think Lane in particular is compared to Packard. Packard, I think, has aspirations. Mm-hmm. He has notions, as we say. Yeah. Um, Lane doesn't. Mm-hmm. Lane has his job to do, and his job is to be the engineer. 
he will do his job, he will do his job well, to the point where fewer of those ferals die or whatever, and he gets to bring his work, and he'll sell them and he'll get his crop. Mm-hmm. And that is his fucking job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because we see it when Birok walks right past him out of the ship, and Lane's just kind of like, okay, what the fuck was that? But his job isn't, like, it's not his job to manage them. That's someone else's job. His job is to be the engineer. So he wasn't going to get in his way. Fuck it. Not his fucking problem. Well, I think he's um, like a small bit hypnotized by it or because they, they really focus on the fact that Barak's eyes change from human-like to lion-like yeah. in that escape attempt. Yeah. So, like, Lane is, like, of the three that we're talking about, Lane is probably the least villainous by direct action. Mm-hmm. But he is still in it for profits and he is still on Rorbeck's side. He does still pull his gun on mm-hmm. the doctor, the same as all the rest of them. <laughs> as opposed to Alder and Royce are like, do I sandwich? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think he is probably, did anything he's the most competent out of all of them. Mm. Um, but then sort of next peg up, we have Packard. Yeah, and Packard is also, I think he's way more competent than Rorik. Mm. Um, because if you notice, he's 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 the one that always suggests the course of action first before Rorik steps on his dick and, like, <laughs> um, take, takes over as if it was his suggestion. And mm. as you say, yeah, he's got notions because, you know, justifiably so because he knows that he can do the job better than Rorbeck can. Um yeah. and he gets on better with, with the guys. He gets on better with all the, the rest of the crew. And if this was like any other scenario, then like yeah like he'd be a good he'd be a good leader. Only problem is is that he's a slaving piece of shit. <laughs> mm. Who true K nine? Yes. Um, and I th- this is the thing is that like I like as I said I like Kenneth Cope as an actor I I, I do, mm. um, and so seeing him like and seeing him play this kind of role is, it's, like I've seen him play less villainous people, way more shadier, mm. whereas here he played a very villainous person. As if a like, almost like um, Vyshinsky from mm. Planet of Evil, mm. you know. Yeah, I disagree with you on one thing. Okay, I don't think Packard would be a good leader. Okay, um, because Packard has a stick up his ass. Now, that stick's name is Rorvik, but Packard has a stick up his ass. Mm. He seems to be one to complain not one to do so while Rorvik is a complete and utter prick of the highest order um, Rorvik is asking him for reports and Packard's just like what the, what's the point in reporting to you on this like, look at the screen yourself and there's a he seems a bit too up his own arse and he thinks very highly of himself which I wouldn't want to follow someone like that. I know I I I get that, but like, is that as a result of 
working under an incompetent superior for so long that you do get a bit of yourself. Maybe, maybe not. Abilities. Maybe, maybe not. But again, if you compare it to um, Lane, Lane also reports to Rorbeck. Mm-hmm. And Lane does his job. Packard complains about his job. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know? Um, that's, that's a good point. But to be honest, initially I was like, oh, he seems stressed to high heaven because of, of Robert. But the more we watched, the more I was like, he's the type of guy who would start a mutiny because he doesn't like the guy in power. But then almost becomes exactly like the guy in power because he doesn't know how else to be. Like, he's not a good leader in his own right. Um, and he tossed... He didn't just kick him. He didn't oh, he, just... He, he drunk tossed him. He lobbed that poor dog out mm. of frame. Therefore, prick of the highest order. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You deserve to burn in hell, you stupid mm. piece of crap. Yeah. Uh, do you know he actually reminds me of? Um, do you remember Sharp's Gold, which was the one about like the um, gorillas that were like descendants of the Aztecs? Um, the one with like the Duke Wellington's Irish niece and cousin. Oh, yeah. And like you had those British soldiers at the start that didn't like working under Sharp because they didn't, they thought he was just basically a prick and mm. so they desert. But then the leader of the deserters turns out to be an absolute fucking prick himself, so they hate him as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that that's the sense I got was Packard. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And he's also someone who's obsessed with his share. Oh yeah, with his cost. Like, yeah, like Rorbeck, and we'll talk about in a second. Is an asshole, mm-hmm. but he has a point. If they want to get out of where they are, the way their ship works, they will need a Tharl to do it. Mm-hmm. So find a way to wake one up without burning its fucking brain out. Do you yeah. mean like Rorbeck isn't wrong? In the way their ship is configured, that is the answer to their problem. Mm-hmm. Or at least it's a step in the answer to their problem. Um, and like I said, Packard's just like, we can't do that. Like, no. And what was it? Find a fucking way, you bellend. Do you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, like, the rest of the minute he threw K9, I, I didn't give a shit about him anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, Although, but, like, I, I will say like that just from my own experience though maybe yeah, like people can call me an asshole if I want I in my previous job I was told by my leader essentially oh I want you to get me this data I'm like it's impossible to get you that data and they're like well you need to find me the data and I'm like where the fuck am I meant to put it from yeah the difference being that Packard has access to an engineer yeah. And it is possible to wake the Tharals up. It's just a case of, okay, find a way to wake them up without doing that, or at least fucking try. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Um, Packard is a prick. Then we have the captain prick, or the king prick, whatever you want to call him. Mm-hmm. Rorvik. Um, I had a phrase, and then I realized that it was very on the nose. I said, he has a wee bit of a Napoleon complex. <laughs> yeah. Um... I, it's like he just can't stand the idea that nobody listens to him mm. you know As, and that, that's exemplified by the fact that like he wants everyone to set up the MZ but then he also wants to listen to him like you know go on this big long speech so that when they're but like, as they're working he actually pulls a gun on them to get him to listen to them 
That wasn't while they were working. They were having their lunch. Oh, was it their lunch? It was their lunch. All right. The design for like, okay, I was say the props for the MZ configuration and the lunch all looked the same. Everyone looked like they were eating grey marbles. Which I know because the two boys were handing out lunch to everyone. Right. And so everyone was chatting. I thought they were handing out pieces of equipment. Sorry. No, handing out lunch. All right. Um, but still, putting a gun on them is still a bit excessive. I don't know. You're essentially pirates. So, yeah. you know. Um... But like as I said, he always like steps on Packard, like because like Packard is like, oh, we should do this. He was like, yo, what do you know? Anyway, we should all do this. Like it's like essentially what he said. It's just I need to be the one to say it. And throughout the story, like he's a, definitely a cross between a petulant child and a narcissistic bully. Mm. Um, and like his attempt to kill the doctor at the end was. It was the it was the one time in the story where he actually felt legitimately threatening. Mm. Um, but like other than that, is while he was the main villain of the piece, mm. he he wasn't interesting. Yeah. It's because he was too much of a caricature of, you know, bad pirate boss, mm. and like I thought. Birok, who was like the more morally grey character, like was the far more interesting character in the story. Mm. I'd agree. Like for me, Rorvik is he is the company prick. He is what's his face from Aliens. Um Dallas. Nope. No that you're thinking of Alien. Oh Aliens. So, oh sorry, uh, aliens. Carter, Carter Carter Burke. Yes. Um he reminds you of him. Crossed with every person you've ever known who failed upwards in their company. Yeah, um, I can see that. The one thing I will say about him, this is a weird thing to defend him on, is he is the captain of the ship. Mm-hmm. He relies on everyone else to do the dirty work and to do the day-to-day jobs. However, when it's a case of like, oh, check the power line or whatever it was, he was like, You've more. I can fucking do that. You have more important things to do. Like he's, so he is willing to get stuck in himself mm. if it's something simple that he can actually do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is a slight improvement. He's like, no, 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 your priority. It's not like again. We've all had those leaders where it's like, you know, this big thing is your priority, but also do all these tiny small things, and you're like, well, pick one. Either the big thing or the small thing. Do both. Um, at least he was like, stop thinking about the small thing. I'll do the small thing. You do the big thing. Do you know, which, you know, small, I wouldn't say necessarily call it a redeeming quality, but a small quality. Um, but what really gets me about Rorvik is his complete inability to listen mm-hmm. to anyone or anything. As if it's not his idea or his observation yeah, he doesn't want to know. Mm-hmm. Um, you see that with Packard at the beginning, really like in his back and forth with the doctor, was like, "Explain how the mirror works." I fucking can't explain how the mirror works. I mm. fucking can't stop asking me. I don't know the answer to your question. Um, but what really gets me with Rorvik and what puts him for me like firmly at the top of our villain pile is the way he treats Romana. Mm-hmm. That's all kinds of messed up. 
do you know, like from the minute he met her, mm-hmm. again, he's not an idiot. He may not understand the intricacies of Lane's job or Packard's job, but he's not an idiot. The minute she starts saying, oh, I don't need such and such. I can travel through time in this box. The other two are like, oh, she can maybe help us fix the ship. And he's just like, nah, we don't need to waste our cargo. We can use her instead. And immediately he latches onto it. Mm-hmm. She's time sensitive in some way. This is something we can use. Whereas the other two take ages to sort of realize that's what he's hinting at. Um, which in terms of if you're going to sacrifice something to see if his plan, because again, in his mind, the best way out is just to try the jump again, right? So that's, that's in his mind, that's the best way out to find the right path, you know, to find the right jump to make or whatever. And so he's like, well, you were saying that you didn't want to use the Tharals because we'll lose out on our percentage. So we're going to use this other person that if it fails, so what? Hmm. Who is she? She has nothing to nobody on this ship. Um, which is very conniving and evil. <laughs> um, and like I said, like that more so than the way he is. Like later in the story, he's just a caricature. Like I said, the Napoleon complex, you know, you, you almost imagine him a little bit like um like as he's sort of screaming at the doctor and whatever, like the end of um Ship of the Dead. Um, mm. I was Chase. And Loki's getting smaller and smaller. That, that's sort yeah. of what you imagine Warwick feels like when he's you know facing off against the Doctor at the end. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't think he's interesting though. With no. all that said, he really isn't. And I'm going to get into my overall why I think that is because I do think there's an issue for the story as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of a villain, I think he's serviceable. He's mm-hmm. alright. But I wish we spent less time on him because there was more interesting topics that could have been covered. He's no pirate captain. No. <laughs> no. No, he's not. Okay. Patty, we have done your summary. Mm-hmm. We have done my trivia. We yes. have done our character discussion. Now we are on to overall thoughts. So, overall thoughts on the story. Score out of five. Go. I think this story is a great analogy for the eSpace trilogy in general, in my in my opinion. It's got a really strong start. And then it fizzles out the longer that it goes on. Mm. Because the... like. I really enjoyed the first two episodes because like there's a real sense of mystery as to what's going on. Like, what are the Tharals? What's going on with the stone archway? Like the Gundans, like the, the whole story behind them being created to help humans rise up against the Tharals. All great. But then the next two episodes is there's a whole lot of nothing going on. Like it's literally people walking back and forth. It just plods along really, really boring. And like we talked before about how there's a lot of like there's a really good morally grey concept to this thing surrounding are the Tharals, you know, in quotations, punished enough for their crimes. But that's it's a throwaway reference. It's barely taken on board again. 
Um, and like, do you know what it actually kind of reminded me of? No, not to the exact same extent, but you know the, I, th- I w- would you say more recent th- theory about uh, the Jedi and the Sith, mm. how the Jedi, you know, were arrogant and believed themselves to be, and you know, the absolute power because of the fact that the Sith were no longer there, and then you have the Sith rising up and hunting the Jedi into near extinction. Mm. It just kind of it kind of reminded me of that whole thing. Uh, but again, not to the same extent. Um, so yeah, it's just like it really started strong, but then it just it just fizzes out completely by the end. And I think I'm I'm giving it a two out of five, which is a bit maybe of a generous two out of five. But that's because I really enjoyed K nine in this story, and I enjoyed the production and air of mystery that was done specifically for the first two episodes. Okay, interesting. So that puts your season so far on mm-hmm. a two point six five, which is quite low. So let's see. So for me, I know that in the trivia I said like, "Oh, it was very reminiscent of that episode of like seven and sort of thing." Mm. It's Alien. The company focus on profit share. Mm. The two random hands who bitch about everything, like. I was actually watching it going like, okay, someone clearly watched Alien. Okay, that. Um, for me, though, I think, I mean, I agree with you in the sense that, like, it's almost reflective. Actually, I agree with you in the sense, like, the E-Space story started off so good. Like, mm-hmm. Full Circle was such a brilliant story. Yeah, it really was. Last week was a mess um, in terms of story and hammy acting and whatever. This is also a mess, but this is a mess that had a better concept. There was a great story in here that wasn't explored. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, to be honest, I chalk it up to our director. Um, I do. I chalk it up to Paul Joyce because this, to me, was style over substance. Mm. All the fancy shots, you know, everything from, like, um, at the beginning with Barak, you can see the TARDIS reflected in his eye when he's Mm -hmm. seeing the timelines or whatever. The void space, all the stuff through the mirror, all the black and white and everything else. Mm -hmm. It was all style. Like, I can completely understand why they had to get him to come back, because who the hell else could direct that if that's the way he'd set it up? Over substance, substance being... The heart of this story is the one that's not explored. You know, Doctor Who has never shied away. Now, people like to think that classic Doctor Who didn't touch on popular popular issues, but we both know that's not true. Yeah, <laughs> there was a really, there's a really interesting point here to be made around slavery mm-hmm. and slaves rising up to enslave their slavers. Mm-hmm. You know. Is that penance? You know, there's you know a conversation about reparations. There's like, if you think about, um, I'm going to say something now that was explained to me, and I might be remembering it wrong. So everyone take what I'm going to say next to a pinch of salt, but I think you'll mm-hmm. get the gist. Um, white South Africans mm-hmm. not calling themselves African, or 
black South Africans demanding reparations from white South Africans. Sort of being like, you know, you were colonizers, mm-hmm. you know, Dutch and, and like European colonizers here. Um, give us back the land. Do you know what I mean? It's like, that is a very interesting conversation. It's like you have, mm-hmm. you know, Barak and his people feeling like everyone is their property. You know, very much the sort of colonizer superiority complex. Mm-hmm. You have, quote unquote, the natives rising up against them, driving them back in a way and obtaining their freedom. But then turn it around on them and enslaving them afterwards. And like, do you know what this story was missing? Was a doctor speech. Where was the doctor speech? Mm-hmm. You know, like you mentioned, um, you know, the pirate captain earlier. Mm-hmm. Like in the pirate planet, you know, again, there was that great bit of the doctor. Like, what's it all for? Mm-hmm. Do you, like, where was that? And it was when I was thinking about that, it was towards the end of the story, like, because after the Doctor and Warbeck have their scenes together, I'm like, but where was the Doctor speech? Do you know, where was mm. looking at the moral question? Where is it? And I was like, do you know what's missing from this story? Is emotion. Yeah. All the performances are so fucking flat. And no offense to Lala Ward, her performance is probably the least flat of them all but mm-hmm. seems completely out of character because of the fact there's been no development into that. Mm-hmm. But like Packard and Lane, Aldrin and Royce weren't too bad with Packard, Lane and Rorvik. Everything is just said so monotone. There's mm-hmm. very little emoting or whatever. And I'm just like, I am so fucking bored. I'm bored. I'm confused. And the over stylistic nature of it can't hide the fact that I'm bored and confused. Mm-hmm. K9 is great. I think great exit story for K9 in the sense that like John really got to play with the character for the story, which was fantastic. I gave it a 1.5. I just think this story is shit. I think like it's a waste of budget and they should have focused more on encouraging their actors to act then on trying to get the right overlays yeah because like that bit in the um, at the tarot feast like where the doctor like starts to show his disdain for what the tarot empire is Mm. it's one confusing scene of him pouring a goblet of wine into another goblet of wine and then someone pulling a butter knife on him that's like no no, it's 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 not it's not enough. Yeah, but then like he goes from that scene where like him pouring one goblet of wine into the other goblet of wine, kind of being like, "I dare you, what the fuck are you going to do to me?" Like mm-hmm. to them backhanding him across time. Suddenly he's in the room at the old table and not back in time. At... But like it's it's, 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 so it's weird sure. because like is the is the realm in between. Is the realm in between, is it the past? Is it just a pocket dimension? And if so, can they choose what time is represented there? 
and if that if if they can choose, why have the time directly before the slaughter of your people begins? Yeah, but also like, um, Barak goes in and sits down and starts eating, and no one re- reacts badly to him. Mm. So like, okay, is it? Are they out of phase with this reality? But apparently not, because mm. everyone else responds to the doctor. So it's like, yeah. what is this? Like, is it for me? Like, I mean, last week was painful because the overacting was absolutely ridiculous. Mm. But this is almost worse because it's underperformed. And there was such an interesting moral story here mm-hmm. that they completely gave up on in favor of endless minutes of walking. I'm like, okay, is it over? Can, can I stop now? <laughs> um, and then we got Romana's departure, which is abrupt, not undeserved, but not developed a, enough in the story for me for it to be believable. Mm-hmm. Um, and Adric was there. Yep. And the doctor was there. They were there. Nesbitt. So, not the best ending to the East Space trilogy. And sadly, it does not reflect well on season 18 as a whole. So, just for context. Season 17, we were very concerned throughout. Um, and it ended up on a 2.67 across the board between you and me. Mm-hmm. Um, this season so far is doing worse. So you're on 2.65 and I'm on 2.4. We have only had one story between the two of us that's gotten over three. And that was full circle. Everything else is less than three nothing is on three it's either four and 4.5 for full circle or 2.75 or less mm-hmm. um so not the best um and it's unfortunate because it, it is tom's last season so but like i will say i like to think and maybe maybe i'm wrong we acknowledge that tom was very ill yeah while this season was being made and I don't think our low scores for the majority of the stories are based off Tom's performance. No. But more so the way the Doctor is written. Yeah, because if you think about it, if you go back to um, you go back to Hartnell, right? Mm. And like we know that uh, Bill was very sick in the, the final days of his run. Mm. The uh, season three still ended up as a 2.75 for us you know Mm. and we have two more stories to go in this so like the next two stories let me just take a look at something there so the keeper of Traken and Logopolis yeah Uh, so yeah they'd both be needing to get like fours in order to get above that or yeah. at least and let me work out the math on this they'd both they'd both need actually to get at least three to reach a 2.75 average for me anyway you're lower so they need to be higher yeah and to get over uh, again let's just double check the math here mm-hmm. to get over a three for you they would both need to be on a 4.0 
Mm. And that isn't enough to get them over a three for me. Yeah. They would need to... Sorry, playing was excellent. No, they, they'd have to get a 4.5. At least one of them would have to get a 4.5 and the other one mm. at least a 4.25 for me to break three, which could happen. I mean, Legopolis is a regeneration story, so we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're going to have to wait a while for that. Yes. Because we just had a companion leave with her final on-screen appearance. Mm-hmm. So we will be doing a rambling next week for Romana, which we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> we're not doing a rambling for K9 because K9 does come back. <laughs> yes. And so we're going to be continuing to discuss them. It's just going to be a while. Um, so we're not going to do a rambling for K9. We probably will eventually. But Although some, some will raise the question, but it's different versions of K9, the same way that it was different versions of Romana. Yeah, but we didn't do a best of Romana Mark, or best of K9 Mark 1. So I know, yeah. We set the precedent. We're not doing it. Um, but so the way it's going to work is this story is going to drop. Then next week, as you're listening to this, you're going to have the rambling for Romana. Mm. Then we're going to be taking a couple of weeks off. Yes. At least three, if I recall correctly, mm-hmm. because I'm going on vacation, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to my brother's stag. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll be away. Mm-hmm. When I come back, we will then be doing Keeper Freakin and Legopolis, our rambling for Tom, and then before we start Peter Davison, mm-hmm. we will be doing K Nine and Company. Yes, we will. As a sort of, it won't be like a standard episode, it'll be a separate rambling. Um, so that's what's due for the next few weeks. But yeah, mm-hmm. uh, this time, two weeks as we're recording this, I should be partying up with our Mission Log friends over in Vegas. So mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Doctor Who will be taking a backseat to Star Trek for two weeks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, guys, until next week, bye. Bye.